Hey y'all, welcome to the Stepping Into She podcast. My name is Courtney, the creator of Stepping Into She and your host for this podcast. The segment you are about to listen to entitled Women in Justice talks about and delves into the conversation of women and young girls in the justice system. We get real about conversations around criminalization of black girls and education in the justice system, the pathways to criminalization and confinement for women, the difference between resources and programs available for young boys and young girls, as well as men and women returning home, what justice looks like for young women, how trauma and healing is something that is needed but often overlooked, and so much more. The amazing women that I get to chat with today shared their experience, whether through firsthand experience, education, or on-the-ground work that contributes to the need, education, and advocacy for women in justice and policy change. I hope that you guys feel compelled after listening to this episode to be a part of the solution to get more involved and to advocate for change for women in the justice system. Hey y'all, welcome to this episode of the Stepping Into She podcast. On the segment, Women in Justice, I have an amazing new episode with two amazing women, Lori Goshlin and Gina Sissoko, talking about this topic of criminalization and women in the criminal justice system. On this episode, we discuss colorism and criminalization, how to get into this type of research and how this research further impacts policy change. We discuss the intersectionality of colorism, gender, and sentences, and how this information further changes the outcome within our criminal justice systems. We also discuss the injustices we see in terms of healthcare inside of our prison systems, as well as black maternal health and reentry and community programs for women returning home from confinement and how these programs are available and what can be done to ensure that the programs continue to be available for women. At the end of this episode, you will hear about some bills being passed, organizations that you can get involvement involved in, <laughs> and as well as advocacy and educational opportunities for you to learn more about this topic of women in the criminal justice system, how you can educate and advocate for policy change, and how you can be a supporter of this movement. I hope you guys enjoy this episode. So thank you ladies for joining the Stepping Into She Women in Justice segment of this podcast. I'm really excited to chat with you both this morning, hear about the amazing work that you're doing here um, in New York, but also talk a little bit about the women in justice topic. So I have two amazing ladies with me today, so I will allow them to introduce themselves. Let's start with Lori. Oh, thank you so much, Courtney. I'm really excited to be here with you and Gina today. Uh, my name is Lori Goshen. I'm an associate professor of nursing at Hunter College in the City University of New York. And uh, my introduction to this work, uh, I began working as a nurse in juvenile justice. Many people don't know that incarcerated people or detained people are the only group in our country that have a right to health care. Uh, but they get very bad health care, as I soon found out. Um, and the, so that started me on this journey. And since then, I've done a lot of research around um, maternal child health and reproductive justice in, um, in, in for incarcerated people and people under community supervision, which is how I started working with Gina. Um, yes, thank you so much um, for the invitation. I'm really happy to be in conversation community with you both today. Um, I am, my name is Gina Sisoko. I am a PhD student in clinical and forensic psychology at John Jay College. 
work right now focuses on how colorism, gendered racism, and trauma interact and affects mental health and criminal legal involvement among Black women and girls. Um, so yeah, that's that's why I am. That's what I do. I'm already moved to um, to the U.S. to to the Bronx um, in 2012 when I was 29 years old. So yeah, nice. Awesome, awesome. And just so everyone knows, I met you ladies both at the task force, um, a task force meeting through the Women's Community Justice Association that meets on Mondays. Um, so that was a great experience to meet you, <laughs> to hear about the work and the intersection of the work that you do with everyone else who's on the call. So that's a great place to get a little bit more information, but also really to connect with a lot of people. I didn't realize there were so many people doing so many things around the topic of um, you know activism, advocacy, and education and support around women in the, the criminal justice system. So that is really awesome. So let's jump in to some of the questions. And as we go, you know, feel free to cut me off and be like, hey, actually, this is what it is. <laughs> this is the education moment conversation and all of that. So you ladies both talked about being um, in education, you have some education background in nurse and then also in forensic psychology. So based on the research that you have done, um, well, based kind of on the research that we hear, we hear a lot about particularly black women being the um, fastest growing population of incarcerated people. Based on your experience and your research, what does that, what does the research tell us? Does it actually show that? Is there a big gap in the research? Is there a misconception around that, that particular topic um, when we're talking about supporting and talking about the concerns of women in justice. Yeah, sure. So the way I um, I think about just generally um, criminal legal involvement in black in, among black women, I think one thing that we have to keep in mind is that the U.S. criminal legal system generally like punishes poverty, mental illness and trauma and blackness, right? Blackness in itself. So there is a long history of how crime, crime and race kind of intersects. And we know that what we consider crime in general is highly racialized, right? Even like crime statistics in itself are really, really racialized. We know that there's been over time a lot of disenfranchisement and also um, over over investment, or not over investment, but kind of under investment in black communities. And at the same time, investment in immigrant communities that were originally not considered white, right? That really show this discrepancy, but the crime statistics that we have, when we know, when we think about the people who are incarcerated, that is really a function of this biased um, system in general. And we also know that when we talk about black women specifically, they're more likely to be poor. They're more likely to live in over-policed communities, um, which means more police contact. Um, a lot of women who are criminalized are um, also trauma survivors. We punish trauma, we punish responses to intimate partner violence. And if we do that, obviously, we are also then um, immediately funneling black women into the criminal legal system, especially considering that black women um, have the highest rates of, of intimate partner violence. Um, and then there's also just generally some evidence that black women and girls are less likely to be offered alternatives to incarceration, where when we talk about community supervision and so forth, right? And when we think about blackness and the way it's been um, punished over time, we also really need to think about stereotypes around aggression, around dangerousness for black women, stereotypes around being the angry black women, the strong black women, and how those things play into that. 
So that's kind of how, how I see it. So we have the, the general system setting women up for being um, incarcerated at higher rates, and they have less opportunities to kind of get off the ramps once they're system involved. If I could add something to that really amazing answer that Gina just gave, um, in, in particular, where this is happening, um, it's happening in jails. So the um, incarceration rates, the prison incarceration rates uh, for women are actually pretty stable or trending a little bit down, though there is still disparity, um, especially between uh, black women and white women. So black women are incarcerated in prisons at two times the rate of white women still. But jails are where the uh, detention or incarceration rates are really um, rising. So in terms of you know, policy and thinking about programming and how we you know, really impact what's happening now, I think the focus, um, you know, rightly so, should be around, around jails. And the, in connecting that to the research that's out there, a lot of the research on um, you know, criminal legal involvement in terms of programming and things like that has been in prisons. So there's not a lot of work out there talking about you know women in jail and what you know what to do about that. So I think that that's a really important you know piece to add. And 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 I want to mention something too. So with COVID, um, there's been there were rapid reductions in jail populations you know around the country. They're starting to trend back up. But when you look at even the immediate rapid reductions. Um, and these numbers weren't reported by the federal government by race, I mean by gender, excuse me, or by sex. But when we look at race, um, the reductions were fastest for white people. So this plays out in just in so many ways and in, in so many places. Um, and in particular, I wanted to mention that. Yeah, I would say even in some of the work that I do, we've seen the reduction in um, youth rates, but then you start to see them picking back up in our detention center. So kind of the same wavelength when we're talking about um, youth and, and, and adults as well. So that's, that's interesting. I would have never, I guess, we don't really hear about the fact that it's in the jails when we think about incarceration. We, I guess we automatically think about prison and we don't really take the second to step back and say there's actually two levels to it. Um, and what happens at this level isn't really talked about as much as what happens at this level. Um, yeah, that's really interesting. Um, <laughs> I have to write that down and do some more research on that. I never, I never thought about that. Thank you for, for sharing that. Um, so kind of going into my next question, when we talk about the pathways to criminalization and confinement for women, and, we, and as you mentioned, Lori, it's kind of like went down during COVID and now it's kind of picking back up. What are those pathways and how have they changed? But then also taking a little bit of the work that you ladies do, what does that look like when we're talking about from, does it change when we're talking about jails to prison or low level offenses to higher level offenses? Does that change? If that makes sense. <laughs> Gina, do you wanna take a piece of that or do you want me to go try to go for it? I think you can go first. Um, so I want to say, you know, from a, you know, piggybacking on what Gina was saying earlier, that um, it's it's how we address that that pathway to prison that we've created, um, especially for Black women through poverty, trauma, uh, our reactions to substance use and um, and mental health symptoms or mental illness, uh, depending on how you look at it. You know, just this constant punitive approach to those things, you know, that contributes to law enforcement contact, that contribute to that initial detention in jail, 
and that depending on how the um, the district attorney in that jurisdiction chooses to charge someone, that might determine whether they end up in prison. And then that becomes this self-reinforcing cycle through community supervision and recidivism, which is some of the work that Gina and I have done around what it looks like to be a mom, the experience of being a mom on community supervision. And the, the beast, what I, what I say, like the beast just continuing to feed itself, you know, making these extremely strict rules um, that are also particularly difficult for women in poverty, women who've experienced trauma. I mean, it's just the same thing, you know, um, versus a community building or a public health approach that reduces law enforcement contact and reduces uh, detention and incarceration or gets people off, like Gina was saying, off that off-ramp. Um, and some places are um, experimenting with, you know, doing that for people who have what you had said were are more high-level charges. For example, for example, people charged with um, fe violent felonies um, and finding that um, that people, um, women charged with violent felonies can do well and maintain their own safety and the safety of others in supportive environments like supportive housing, permanent supportive housing or transitional, where they get what they really needed in the beginning, which was safe housing, support for their trauma exposure, you know, and all the other things that they need versus punitive detention and more trauma. Yeah, absolutely. I um, And I think just to add to what Laurie just um, beautifully laid out, I think when I think about especially Black women in particular, I try to also think about it really from like this development perspective, right? Focusing on what happens um, when a Black child is put into this world, right? So first we need to think about the, the environment, like poverty, under-resourcing, over-policing. And then we think about the school-to-prison pipeline that really um, plays a major role in terms of pathways into the criminal legal system, right? So we think about, especially when we when we read works by um, Monique Morris or Nikki Jones, we understand that there's really this unique path pathway by which girls are being pushed out of schools and into the juvenile justice system, right? Which then continues like the cycle. So we know that um, black girls are more likely to be suspended, more likely to be um, to receive expulsions. And I think these are obviously direct pathways into the criminal legal system. Black girls make up 16% of the school population, but 41% of the school arrests, 34% of um, referrals to law enforcement. And um, very often this is happening for really subjective assessments, you know, such as being deemed the ghetto black girl. It's about the hair. It's about whatever dress code they're violating. And um, it's about how they talk, right? So just because black girls, whichever black girl fails to kind of conform to the standards of white Eurocentric um, femininity, is subject to being punished, right? So in addition to that, then there's also mistreatment by teachers. And um, so that leads to potentially to like problems in school engagement, right? And all of these things then lead girls to potentially be more involved in the underground community. That leads to more um, vulnerability to trauma, right? And then we have mental health obviously intersecting with trauma, um, teasing, discrimination, no, no support and constantly being devalued. Um, and that then pushes girls into, 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 into 
into the criminal legal system. And then once they are in the criminal legal system, and one thing to add to that is also identification of black girls, obviously, right? Black kids in general are less likely to be seen as kids. So they're not afforded the same benefits that children are for just appropriate um, developmental behavior. You know, we, we, we punish girls, we, we call the police because they're throwing tantrums, right? Like that's what we see. So when we think about pathways, that's like a major thing of it, just how we perceive black girls um, and really don't even afford them the benefit of being girls. And then once you're in the system, obviously the disparities are happening at every level then, right? Thinking about how they're charged, as Laurie mentioned, diversion, whether or not you're offered or um, diversion or not, detention, what, how long you're, you're detained for, pretrial, which obviously plays also a huge role in how you, you'll be able to adjust back in the community, right? Um, how likely you are to be transferred to the adult criminal system, right? And then we have harsher sentencing data. Um, and then just let me think about for, um, especially for, for, for youth, post-disposition, what's happening then, we know that um, juvenile justice involvement really has no termination. Either you age out or um, you are deemed rehabilitated, which is also highly biased because people kind of don't perceive black people to rehabilitate because they're all, the way they are, um, they're deemed as just dangerous and broken in general. So. Um, and that then contributes obviously to like the cycle that Laurie talked about in terms of just going back and forth because it is really hard to adjust back in the community after all of that, that long process. Yeah, no, that, that's, that's all really good. I'm just sitting here thinking as you ladies are talking, one of the gaps or misconceptions I guess I, I can see is when we're looking at, and this is just in the state that I work in, we're looking at the detention data, the number of women, um, young girls, I'm sorry, in detention are so low, but then it looks like it changes um, after a certain age. So when we're looking at how many youth are admitted to detention, obviously males make up a larger portion, which is which can contribute to the reason why maybe the conversation around women in the system doesn't happen as such a, on such a larger scale, because obviously mass incarceration of men has, have been, has been the topic, but it's interesting to see the shift so like you can see that there's a shift once the young girls kind of get over 18, there's like a shift in the uptick in numbers of um, young women in the jail. So that's, that's actually really interesting. I'm wondering if you're seeing that in the community supervision numbers as well. I think sometimes, um, you know, young, women in general and younger women might be getting community supervision and then right when they get you know cross that threshold it almost just shoots them into the adult system so that they're not necessarily showing up in the detention numbers but i don't know that that data well and i think that because it's so hard to piece all these things together you know whether that data is reported by um, sex and by race anyway um, you know it's hard to find and then it's all piecemeal and all in different places um, but so heavily connected you know yeah, absolutely and I think one of the things we also need to acknowledge is like in terms of when we're thinking about in like an intersectional approach into thinking about girls and women's criminal legal involvement right that we think about the appropriate comparison group right so that we think about who in comparison to are people disproportionately affected or not, right? Are we looking at, are we, is our black girls in itself like um, worthy of study or does it always have to be compared to black men, right? Or black boys, right? Or is it, or are we comparing to 
other girls of other races who might not have them. Like, where are the where's this disproportionality happening, and um, who is worthy of study? That's a really good point. That's really really good. I need to. I need to um, <laughs> so you know, you kind of segued me into the segued us into my next question and your background and your study of colorism and criminalization was the kind of the first time I actually heard about that. So I was like, oh, that's really, really interesting. I think it's a, a topic that doesn't get a lot of uh, conversation, doesn't get a lot of publicized public conversation. Um, so just really quickly, can you tell us how you got into that research and kind of what, what ignited the fire in you to say, this is what I wanted to study? Yeah, that's a that's a um, kind of a long story, but I'm going to try to keep myself um, short as short as possible. So I, um, as I said, I was born and raised in Germany to immigrant parents from Mali. So I was always really interested in like the heterogeneity of of um, black and black communities. So how black people are different, but also how they are the same, right? So I lived in um, lots of different places, but always had a really strong. Um, sense of belonging and interest in the black community in general, um, and specifically in, in, in black women and in Germany, where we talk more so about African women, African immigrant women there. So um, one of the things I was specifically interested in was the differences and trauma responses by black women based on culture. Um, but I was also interested in how kind of structural racism impacts women's ability to um, to receive the services that they need. Um, so, and at that time, so when I came to, when I came to New York and started my official studies, I guess, in, in, in psychology as an undergraduate, um, I started also kind of reading more, talking more, um, or taking more women and gender studies classes, getting more into black feminism. Um, and that's also when I realized more the, how the structures are really different in America and how um, the criminal legal system is such a huge part of um, the black experience here. I was connected with Laurie then when I was an undergrad um, who was working with my, my undergraduate advisor um, who, who, who was also at Hunter and who was in, a, in, in psychology there. And my advisor basically um, connected Laurie and I and Laurie was working on this project on parenting um, under um, community supervision. And um, so I was told, hey, there's going to be lots of women, lots of like, there'll be interviewed, lots of trauma. So I was kind of just following along. And um, I, I don't know, I like to consider myself like a little baby um, researcher. So I was following along, trying to like learn as much as possible, um, trying to just get involved in all of the projects that Laurie had going on. Um, at that time, I was also like reading heavily, reading the new Jim Crow, reading women, um, race and class by Angela Davis and so forth. And um, it was really, really powerful to hear the women talking about their experiences in person and reading about all of the structures that are in place that are causing what the women were discussing, right? Um, so that's when I kind of expanded my view of trauma to really inc in incorporate also structural trauma, right? And historical trauma. Um, but I've always had this, um, not, I don't know, fascination is, a, is the wrong word, but this commitment to center the most marginalized. And I think colorism is generally a discussion that is kind of shooed away, but it is actually really important and affects black women in a lot of different ways. But I was really interested in applying that to how the criminal legal system uh, impacts black women in general. So that's, I guess that's how I got into it. And then I saw that there isn't a ton of research out there on it at all, actually. 
And um, so kind of found my niche and now I'm asking all of the questions that we are asking about black women from the lens of, but what about dark-skinned black women? What's happening there specifically? So, yeah. Yeah, that's, I, I think what you said is, is really important. And also the, there's not a lot of research on there and the conversation is kind of like shush, shushed away. So even when we're talking about, even when we're looking at research and we're talking about numbers and all of that, there is also a breakdown where co colorism kind of comes into play. And then we kind of see, and I think I, on your infographic, you really talked a little bit about, you know, how the, when black women, the shades of black women change, the numbers and the treatment and the sentences also change with that. So really understanding that there is the need for more research like this, there is the need for more people like you <laughs> to talk about it. Um, so I appreciate I appreciate that so much, so much. I was really interested in that. Um, and you talked about a little bit about how in Germany, it's really, we're talking about black women in terms of African descent and all of that. And then when you come to America, it's a different structure. Did that kind of play into how you saw the experience change? Because I know you said coming, you came here and you moved here in 2012 and it was kind of like a different conversation in Germany than it is in America. Does that notion of colorism exist in Germany when we're talking about women of color? So, I okay, so that's a, I think the, I think colorism discussions happen in all black communities across the world, not just black, really, any community of color, right? Like we also see a lot of colorism in South, Southeast Asian communities, right? There's like a colorism is a is a thing, is a is a global thing, right? Um, but I think the conversation when I think about Germany is that there are there has to be a conversation about black women to begin with to like have on a larger scale a conversation about colorism. I do think, as I, I think, you know, these are like kitchen table conversations, right? They happen with our moms, with our grandmas, with our friends, but they don't necessarily happen in the public eye. Um, and so coming here to America, I also didn't see that the conversation was happening as much in America, but there are definitely select scholars who, are, who have done a ton of work on it, right? Who have really talked about it, tried to highlight it. Even the um, work that you just talked about in terms of looking at sentencing in North Carolina, looking at death sentencing, right, in Philadelphia, like all of this work is related to colorism. Very often it's not called colorism. We talk about black stereotypicality, we talk about skin tone, um, but that is all in its in essence colorism work. So, um, but yeah, I guess um, the conversation, I think, the conversation about colorism is no nowhere near enough anywhere, but definitely it's more happening in the United States than it is in, in Germany. And sorry, and just to add a caveat to that, colorism is also incredibly difficult because in Germany we also see a lot of, so we the generations are different, right? So we are now like at the second, maybe third generation of um, of the majority of black people who are in Germany living there are second or, or third or first or second generation. And just now we are seeing like the little children might be third generation. So, but we also have a lot of biracial, like biracial people, right? Who have, who might have a white parent. And um, the one drop rule as it existed in America doesn't exist in the same way in Germany, right? So there is a little bit of difference in black identity in general, who's considered black, what is blackness, what is not blackness. So I think that also adds a lot to the mix of the colorism conversation there. Yeah, that's interesting because I think when we have, I, I spoke with a, a couple of friends and the way that they talk about uh, colorism 
in an island that is predominantly black is different than the way it's kind of talked about in America. I think it's like you said, it's talked about more here because I think it's we're able to label it a little different than maybe other places are. And I, I wonder, that's interesting. <laughs> it's really interesting. Um, so you talked a little bit about the intersectionality of colorism, gender, and sentences. Does it, and you talk about how um, you saw it a little bit more prevalent here. Does it change based on like sexual orientation or identification when we're talking about black women and skin tone? Yeah, so I think one of the main, so that's an excellent question and it is yet to be tested, right? So I think there is a, the problem mainly that we see in color, when we talk, talk about colorism and criminal legal involvement, especially when we're talking about sentencing, because that's where most of the, that's where we have most of the, the data. Um, we just don't know um, much about it. So we don't know um, whether or not, or that's to my knowledge, we don't know whether or not it changes by sexual orientation or um, gender expression, right? So these are all things that we still have to figure out. Um, skin tone in itself is incredibly difficult to measure based on just what you also said, right? So first of all, skin tone changes, right? Changes even in the seasons. It changes based on your geographic location. It change, it's completely relative based on who you, who you hang out with, who you are, like wh where you live, what's considered dark skin, what's considered light skin object. Like we also know that a lot of times, especially when we think about mental health outcomes, um, objective assessment of skin tone. So someone saying you are dark skin or you are light skin is actually not as predictive of the of the um, negative mental health outcomes as subjective um, experiences. Considering yourself dark skin because because you probably grew up around people who are a lot lighter than you or a lot darker than you, right? So um, all of that to say is that we just don't know and hopefully we can you know, continue the uplift the conversations and trying to get more people to be interested and then more people to assess skin tone. But I think we're a little bit of a long way, um, far kind of a long, long way away from being able to reliably assess skin tone. So, yeah. And, and you talked a little bit about this, but to dive into it a little bit more, the gaps in the research, does that, or is there a place to put colorism and criminalization research to, in place to change policy? Or what would it look like if that research was, was uh, presented in a way to kind of really impact the way we look at criminal justice reform, particularly for women of color, Black women? Yeah. Mm. I think that's a that's an excellent question. So I think in general, um, any type of awareness, like any type of research, should raise awareness in order to be helpful for to impact any change. I believe that colorism work is going to right now. Colorism research is most impactful when we listen and center dark skinned women in our analysis, right? So, for example, um, the what we what we just talked about, um, what you brought up in terms of when we're thinking about detention of black girls, right? I, we need to take a very close look at who's detained. Is it is is it the is it five dark skinned women and like and I don't know, I don't, you know, twenty dark-skinned men, that's still a conversation to be had because that's where we see how these kind of, how colorism operates in like this, um, I, don't, I don't know, like in this kind of, uh, what's the, sorry, I don't know what the word is for that, but like in insidious, insidious, in this insidious way, right? It is colorism and white supremacy in general has like this really great way of kind of hiding, hiding things 
hiding things in the dark so that we don't care about it as much because there aren't as many people impacted. But really what we need to do is, is center the most marginalized, the ones most impacted, because it matters that they are more likely to be sentenced to death. They're more likely to be sentenced for longer. They're more likely to be ex expelled from schools. Um, so that's kind of highlighting the conversation will help us also kind of finding ways where we still have a lot of work to do. Um, because very often dark skinned women are impacted by things in way, way, strong, way, way um, harsher ways than lighter skinned black women or, or white women or women of other races. If I could add to that, if I could add to that really quickly, um, you know, absolutely. And I think as we think about, you know, criminal legal reform, um, which has seen some successes for black men in particular around the country. I mean, it's slower than we want it to be, but those numbers are going down um, that when we think about who may be left behind by criminal legal reform, I am very concerned that um, that would be the very women that um, and girls that Gina just mentioned. And so centering um, black women and girls and especially dark skinned black women and girls um, is very important so that we are structuring criminal legal reform and our abolitionist efforts in a way that does not leave them behind. Yeah, and I think I, I go back to the colorism and criminalization infographic that you shared that was that was really powerful and having a conversation with um, a previous colleague about this particular topic. We talk about when we talk about um, skin tone, the connectedness or the lighter you get, the more you're seen, maybe seen as a victim as a woman. So the, the, the trauma and everything in the services are kind of different, but the darker you are, the less likely you are seen as a victim or the less likely you are seen as even human or, or less likely you're seen as in need of something. And I think your infographic really shed, sheds a light on just how different it is, but then talking about when we talk about the perceived notion of women in the justice system, when you don't look like the traditional um, woman or, or like a victim or, or when you don't look like um, what is perceived as you can receive support, you can receive services, you can receive this, it's harder for you to navigate that, <laughs> but it's also harder, and you kind of talked about it, it seems like it's harder to even really pin to shed light on that because it kind of not just gets pushed under the rug, but it's grouped into this larger conversation where black women in particular are kind of like falling through when we talk about reform and they seem to be kind of the ones most impacted by the repercussions of it all, if that makes sense, yeah. Absolutely. And I think Courtney, you're touching on so many really important things. And this is like totally my gem, right? So that is ex like one of the main things that I'm personally interested in. And um, it's, uh, so one thing that I'm mainly interested in is really exactly when we're talking about dark skinned trauma survivors who are criminalized, right? So when we're thinking about IPV survivors who are who might be perceived as more dangerous are being more culpable just based on what they look like. We are more likely to criminalize them. They are less likely to get services. And that is like something that is so, so um, dangerous because we also know that black women are, you know, are at a very high rate, um, more likely to be killed, right? More likely to be killed in intimate partner violence situations. If they don't feel like they can get help based on how they look like, 
that's a huge problem. We are inadvertently contributing to people's death. And um, colorism, I believe, plays a major role in that. So thank you so much for bringing that up. Absolutely. Yeah, if I could add one thing to um, that, I think we so commonly historically have seen the women who are victims over here, um, you know, women, white victims, and women who are involved in the criminal legal system over here. And I know Gina and I have seen in our own work and then the literature demonstrates um, and directly impacted women are screaming out there, you know, we are the same people, you know, we have histories of trauma and it feeds us into this criminal legal system that we can no longer separate who's a victim and who is an offender, quote unquote. Um, and I also wanna shout out um, Sharon White Harrigan from the Women's Community Justice Association and she said, it's not about need. These women need that. These women need that. No, these women deserve. They deserve safety. They deserve, this is like reparations, right? And I, when I first heard her say that, I mean, especially in my positionality as a, as a white woman, I was just like, it, it hit me so hard and it was just so right. And it's a different way to look at, um, look at, you know, this, this group of women. Yeah, I think that's important. I think, and, and thank you for that. It's not a need, it's it's deserving. You are deserving regardless. And I think that's really important to shed the light on and really talking about um, just understanding. And I'm in, and it's in my mind, as I'm processing it, it's kind of like, like you mentioned earlier, Gina, like the strong black woman perspective, like, oh, you're strong enough to, to get through this. You're strong enough to do this and that. So I think that also plays a part into it. But when we're talking about really understanding how colorism impacts the way that decisions are made or perceptions are, are put out there. It's really important to understand that when we're talking about reform, that they, like you said, that they are in the center of it, that, that women and black women in particular are in the center of this reform effort and that we need to shed a light on it. So thank you. Thank you for that. <laughs> um, so I just want to, to kind of talk a little bit about, and, we, and you kind of touched on it earlier, um, criminalization confinement and mental health and receiving services. So I wanted to ask Lori, um, as a nurse <laughs> and in your profession, um, what injustices do you see within that population when we're talking about women in the justice system that we don't have public conversations about? Because like we said earlier, obviously a lot of the research and topics and conversations are focused around men, but it seems like, and like you said, particularly in jails where you see this change, it seems like that conversation around mental health um, services and support goes unnoticed. So talk, can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I think that's a really great point in, in looking at um, what's going on in jails around, around mental health and around women's health in particular, that in a lot of the country with, um, with you know, the changes, the rise in, um, in drug use or opioid use in particular, that many communities are deciding to feed women who are using substances into jails as a way to protect them, quote unquote, or as a way to, um, you know, give them the services that they appear to need. And, um, and then once, you know, maybe that's a decision made by one group of people. And then when women actually get into those jail settings, they're just getting trauma. You know, there, you know, there are more women dying in jails across the country and, and disproportionately those are black women. Um, and, and also there are babies dying in jails because people give birth 
in confinement um, under horrifying um, situations. So I think that that's something I wanna shout out that when people criminalize um, substance use and use these you know, very punitive approaches um, to yeah, substance use or mental health symptomatology in general, um, thinking that the jail is going to give them some treatment. It, it's not, it doesn't. Um, and we need, to, we need to know that and make different choices. And I remember you mentioning earlier that incarcerated people are the only population that receive, that is required to receive, you know, services and healthcare. And I think people assume that because they are required to receive that, that it's an adequate level of healthcare and that it's at the level that they are assumed, that they assume that they get that other, that people who are incarcerated receive as well. So when we talk about, and you kind of touched on it a little bit, um, when we talk about maternal health, particularly women who are mothers or who are pregnant while incarcerated, we never talk about incarcerated women in that conversation. Why is that? Or do you, or is there a reason that we don't have that? We don't combine that population. We don't see women as a whole, regardless of incarcerated or not, when we're talking about mental health, or is it just a stigma or is it mute? Does that even happen? <laughs> where, do, yeah. where does that conversation happen? Yeah. I mean, I think you're bringing up a good point. I think partly it's just many, many people just don't, they just really don't know that pregnant people are incarcerated. Um, and, and when I, when I talk to people about it, they're like, oh my gosh, I just, I didn't even, I didn't even know. Um, and so, you know, it's partly that, and then it, it is also the stigma. So for people who do know, they see this group of women as undeserving and dangerous. So for example, Gina and I have done work on the attitudes of nurses who care for incarcerated pregnant people um, when they're giving birth towards that group of, of, of women. And, and what we found is that, you know, stigma towards that group, like negative attitudes and the perception of negative attitudes in others and the perception that corrections officers or custody personnel have control over the care of this group are associated with lower intentions to provide them the known standard of care. Um, and so in terms of a larger conversation though, I really wanna shout out Congresswoman Ayanna Presley um, and her um, Justice for Incarcerated Moms Act. It's part of the larger momnibus that has uh, been put together by Lauren Underwood, who's a Congresswoman from Illinois and she's a nurse. What? Anyway, um, and she's amazing and brilliant. So, um, so what uh, Congresswoman Presley's act would do is create and fund alternatives to incarceration specific to pregnant people. Um, and it would also, because we, we don't wanna, you know, the women who might be left behind, we wanna also make sure that their care is adequate. It would improve services in particular in federal prisons, um, including increasing access to doulas and mental health support. Um, and it would also make the facilities report out the services that they're providing and the outcomes, because that's something that's really, really hard to find. So all that to say that I think that there are people who have broad platforms who are trying to um, make sure that this group of women is included. Um, and I also wanna say that in terms of the momnibus, it, um, you know, it's a large number of bills. Uh, the first bill in the momnibus 
to pass just passed a couple weeks ago, and it was a bill specific to um, pregnant people who are um, serving in the military or veterans. So I'm hoping that that will just be the start of different pieces of the momnibus either passing as a whole or separately. So I'm, I'm excited about that. Yeah, can you talk? Can you tell us a little bit about what momnibus means? What that what that is for those listening. <laughs> I'm so sorry. So the Momnibus is an omnibus group of bills. So it's a number of different bills, all built around maternal health equity um, and centering Black women. Um, it is being coordinated um, by uh, Representative Lauren Underwood, but also has Senate sponsorship, I believe, um, by Cory Booker. And I know that um, Vice President Harris was also involved um, when, you know, when she was in her senatorial role. Um, so it, it's and it's an amazing group of bills that would you know revolutionize support and care and um, you know and really address our maternal mortality crisis for Black women um, and also improve the care in particular for um, incarcerated pregnant people and pregnant women. Yeah, and I'm, I I want to go back to one thing you said earlier is um, the study that you and Gina did about the perceptions. And you talked about how just across the board, <laughs> there's lower perceptions. And I'm wondering um, how, did this, how does this tie into, or has this conversation been had kind of tying into Gina's work about colorism? Was there a breakdown in terms of just, I know we talked about race and gender, but does that change depending on, you know, if the nurse in the facility is a woman of color and the woman who is giving birth is a woman of color, those, does those perceptions change? Are they similar or is there still like a gap in terms of, of how women are perceived regardless of the, the I, race of the nurse and the race of the woman that is giving birth? Yeah. That's a great question. And I think that's the next step in the research that we did. Um, so what I can say is our sample were overwhelmingly white and that's a problem in nursing. Nursing is so white. Um, and there are people, you know, working on that issue because, um, you know, having a caregiver that you that sees your full humanity and looks like you um, is is really important. Um, so I guess what I can say in particular about Gina and I's work is that the results do reflect white nurses' perceptions. Um, and because we know that there's disproportionality in who is incarcerated, we can assume that the stigma would particularly attach itself to black women. Uh, it's not something that we particularly looked at though. Thank you. Um, so kind of talking a little bit about the larger conversation in, in also bringing in motherhood and maternal health and all of that. When there are conversations about particularly reentry or community-based supervision programs, there's always this conversation or let me say, I don't wanna say there's always this conversation. From what I've heard and experienced, there has always been a conversation around these programs to support women being just good mothers. Like if you are a good mother, then you can be a good person. If you know how to take care of your child, then you can make changes in your life. Um, does that perception kind of meet the issue of what you talked about in terms of the perception of mothers in prison or jails? I think based on my experience when I worked in DC, a lot of the women were kind of like, well, I'm still a, I'm still a person, so I still want these services for myself, not necessarily to be a mother. So does that kind of translate 
from inside the facilities to outside to community-based programs and further, if that makes sense. <laughs> Um, so I think it's a, it's a both and, right? Um, for me, and maybe it's my training in, in um, reproductive health and maternal child health, uh, but women that I speak to um, in my research and then directly impacting women that I know want um, services around mothering. And it's not a didactic like lecture about how to be a good mom. You know, it's real actual structural support for keeping connected to their kids. I mean, you see these didactic programs happening in prisons and jails, but they don't have an additional support for actually being able to talk to your kid. You know, um, we're working here in New York in particular around legally codifying in-person visiting because many jails right now are going only to video visiting. So that's an important, you know, kind of, um, current fight happening related to your question. Um, so I would say that, you know, women want and deserve services for themselves, employment, you know, personal mental health and trauma supports, um, you know, housing, and they, and they also may and should be offered services to maintain contact with their children to resume um, custody if, if that's something that they want to do, or if for some reason a woman no longer has contact with her children or custody, maybe her custody has been um, you know, permanently put asunder, some support to deal with that as an extremely huge trauma in women's life. So all that to say a menu of supports that address all of the kind of known um, concerns that directly impacted women have that they can choose and are not stigmatized for not choosing, for example, if they don't choose to avail themselves of parenting supports. That's a, that's a good point if they choose not to. Um, <laughs> I think sometimes we just assume that that's what, that's what women would want or that's what the services should be. And they actually have a choice to decide if they want to do that or not. I think that's important to highlight too. Uh, the next question I kind of have based on all of that is when we talk about the programs and, and thank you for clearing that up and saying that you know there are different types of services and that it's not just like a lecturing service, there should be structural services in place as well does this impact or how does this impact the health and well-being particularly of black women when we're talking about black women as mothers either in the system or in community-based programs does does the the level of resources change does the level of perception or need of resources change when we're talking about the health and well-being That's a good question. Could you tell me that one again? <laughs> okay. Regina, if you have if you have something at the ready, uh, you go for it. I don't want to monopolize. I um no, I think I I also just wanted to, I actually just wanted to clarify the question more for you. Do you mean when they are um so whether or not they are moms or or not, whether the change the services change? Oh, sorry, Courtney, I think you're muted. Sorry. Muted. <laughs> The, the you are muted has transitioned to 2021. <laughs> um, so my question is when we're, when we, cause we were talking about motherhood programs for women who are coming home, who wanna see their children and all of that. Does that change when we're talking about um, black women? Is there a level of difference in terms of care or support or programs or resources when there are um, black women who are 
going through this as opposed to either white women or other women of color? Does, does that change? Yeah, one thing I wanna talk about in relation to your question, um, and I'm not sure if it's what you were thinking of, but um, when we look at it from an intersectional perspective, um, black women are more likely to have um, contact with also the family court system. So um, any services that are, that really will truly support um, black moms that are um, in the criminal legal system should also have some component to help people navigate, but either prevent if they're not in contact with the family courts or help them to navigate the family courts uh, because those systems, the family court system is almost more racist than the criminal legal system, if that's possible to imagine. Um, so that's something I, you know, I think that's really important that we don't talk a lot about dual court involvement and how in particular that affects black families. Anyway, I know you have something to add to. Yeah, absolutely. And just to add on to that, um, one study that I, one of Laurie's studies that I worked on when we, where we um, interviewed women um, who were under community supervision, I mean, the family court involvement and the stipulations that are like tied to that are so, can be so racist. I remember that some of the um, data showed that there are there's discrimination based on hair, hair color, whether or not you get to see your child or not. I mean, these are things that are very, very, very specific to black women, right? So um, that's just something that I wanted to throw into the mix there. And just also, whenever we think about moms, we think about anything that has to do with gender, I think one thing that we just always, and I know I keep repeating myself, is that any deviation, any deviation from Eurocentric white femininity is going to be punished. That's going to um, affect how you be, you, how you are seen as a mom. That's going to affect um, how the community, how how parole officers or probation officers are going to see you. It's going to affect how the judges and other people who are um, making decisions are going to see you. How the seals are going to see you, um, and how people who provide services in the community are going to see you. Um, so while there is just generally not a lot of data out there i think that it's always a safe assumption and one thing that i think in research people get very frustrated with is like this um, need for very specific type of data although if we were just to listen to the people and um, we wouldn't have to waste our resources on doing years and years of studies of something that we've known for years already yeah that's a good point and it, it takes me to the conversation I actually had um, with Sharon about this and the importance of having women at the table who have been incarcerated, who have who can who have direct experience, who can speak to this, and then just like you said, just listening to them can alleviate all of the years of of research and work that's done. But really, just just more so just affirming what they're saying and and not saying that oh well we don't have this to show that this is actually real but there are real people at the table saying that this is an issue and this is this is what it was like and this is how it should be changed so i think that's that's really important so one of the things you ladies both talked about earlier is trauma and healing and when we talk about trauma and healing we don't necessarily shed a light on we talk about how women who are coming into the justice system are coming who are coming from trauma situ situations and it's kind of like a, a a role of survival like sometimes as they're coming into the system we forget that a lot of the things that happen that may be criminalized are just out of survival out of survival of trauma or out of survival of just you know things that they're experiencing every day how important is the the need for trauma-based services in the conversation when we're talking about women in justice particularly 
I know there is a level to it when we're talking about women who are in the system, but where does that fall when women who are on community-based supervision, does that conversation happen? And if it doesn't happen, where's the, the gap or where's the field where we can kind of start navigating and talking about the need for those services? I think there's a growing conversation in the corrections and I use air quotes there, um, you know, community uh, around trauma-informed care. And that's been growing over the past couple of decades, but now it's, you know, pretty normalized. Um, and, and, and I would say, you know, I would, I would love to see it. I would love to see them work themselves out of a job. You know what I mean? Like I, this whole system that's been built up is so traumatogenic, um, you know, jails and prisons and community supervision that it's trauma responsive and trauma informed to, to tear it down. Um, so that's what I'm, you know, most interested at, at this point really um, in doing. And, um, and I think, you know, in particular, I wanna talk about something that is happening here in New York as it relates to um, people with a history of trauma and um, whose trauma directly led to their incarceration. So we passed here in New York, the Domestic Violence Survivors Justice Act through the work of directly impacted women over years, like a decade, they were working on that bill. And what it does is get uh, people out, uh, allow people to apply for release if their crime was directly related to um, trauma. And what's happened is, and this always is the case when you work in criminal legal reform, you have to keep paying attention. After a bill is passed, you have to keep paying attention. Because for example, there's a recent case of a woman here in New York who was released under the DVSJA and everyone was thrilled, except she was released directly into the custody of ICE because she is not, um, does not have um, US citizenship. So, you know, DVSJA was not designed for that. And the, the directly impacted women who worked for years to make that happen did not imagine the system would just shift to allow women who achieved release under DVSJA just to be put into the ICE system. So um, all that to say that when, when we're doing this work and we're working on both, you know, making sure that the, you know, prisons and jails and community supervision is as least traumatogenic as, as possible, that the real trauma work is just getting people out of these systems and making, watching the system to make sure that it's not changing over time, just to keep feeding itself. Um, I know that's a very cynical answer, but I just, it's really from my heart, you know? Yes, and I, I um, thank you for sharing that, Laurie. And I think that's like such an important um, point and like a, such, a, such a good way to look at it, right? In terms of the, um, the trauma that the system in itself also causes. And I think for one of the things that I, when I think about this question, what I think about is how much earlier we need to start with trauma-informed care, right? This needs to start way before someone is even involved with the criminal legal system. So that's one, one thing that I think is important in order to um, divert um, people before they even get to the first point of contact. And then I think whenever we think about trauma, we also need to take into account that whatever we consider trauma-informed care today 
is still something that is also very Eurocentric, right? Also very white centered. It's something that we don't know. And especially when we think about care, about, about therapy, about other support services, what women actually need, what, how their trauma might manifest. Um, it's not always, always PTSD or other trauma related disorders, right? We need to take into account racial trauma. We need to take into, into account cultural trauma, historical trauma, all of these different things and how they impact people. Um, on all different levels. So um, there's also something that people consider skin tone trauma that's related to colorism specifically that can also maybe be taken into account. But um, yeah, anyway, so that's my two cents. That's good, that's good. That's a great, that's a great point. Just, just talking about there are also levels to it and, and it's important to identify what not just what the services look like, but also when we're talking about what trauma-informed care looks like, that it's going to change depending on who we're, who is receiving the services. And I think that's important to note. Definitely important to note. And sorry, if I can also add one thing. The other thing I'm thinking, um, Laurie's answering me think about that, is also when you think about these different systems, we also need to think about the um, mental health system, right? And how coercive that system is, right? So thinking of, we don't want to funnel people from the criminal legal system into the mental health system where um, they're potentially also confined for life or whoever knows, right? So that's the other part. Yeah, that's important. That's, that's um, So another question I have kind of based on everything that we've discussed so far is kind of in lieu of the cross connection and social unrest, is anything changing? based on what we've seen over the past couple of years when we're talking about Black women criminalization and incarceration, is anything changing? And if not, I guess it's not. <laughs> Where do we go from here? <laughs> I know it's a loaded question. <laughs> I think, I mean, we're talking earlier about how the jail incarceration rates are rising for women um, and we'll see the most recent numbers are pre-COVID, so we'll see what happens there. Um, I, my concern is that there will be change, um, but it will be sporadic, you know. Um, so for example, um, the Women's Community Justice Project here in New York is providing transitional supportive housing and voluntary services to, to get women off of Rikers. And like I was sharing earlier, um, this, this program, it serves women um, who have been accused of violent felonies. So they're really um, working with women who historically would have done upstate prison time. Um, I hope that that is also happening in other jurisdictions around the country, but I'm not sure. So again, my main concern is that you know, maybe women um, in New York and other, you know, smaller places would get access to some programming and that women in other places would continue to receive punitive treatment. Um, and, you know, even in New York, um, these programs, um, and I've been working for over a decade now, um, you know, looking at supportive housing as an alternative to detention for women. Um, these programs are generally funded on grants, so soft money whereas law enforcement and custody gets a hard budget line every year. And those budget lines, even in New York, the D Department of Corrections budget just keeps going up, even though the number of people at Rikers is going down. So 
we need to flip that um, where these uh, community building and alternatives to detention get a hard budget line and don't have to be scrounging for money. Um, and I think that that's a really important thing that's going to have to happen if we can concretize um, these, you know, these small successes that we're having in, in places, you know. Yeah. And one thing I think, um, in addition to, to thinking about um, how we get women out of detention, right, out of incarceration, um, one thing, so I, Laurie um, gave me this opportunity to co-author a, a, a book chapter with her where we looked specifically at, um, at barriers to mothering under criminal community justice supervision in the United States. And I think one of the things that we saw across like all different areas is like the potential to write, like to get out and then get right back in, right? Like how many, like how difficult it is for, for women to escape like the carceral state in general, to get off completely. And that's like one thing that I'm most concerned with when I'm thinking about how, what we're, what we're thinking about in terms of change of incarceration, like decreasing, you know, mass incarceration or combating mass incarceration. Yes, that makes sense as long as we don't expand in other ways and um, harden our supervision um, in the community because that's the way either back in or for a lifelong criminal legal involvement just based on random violations or inability to receive the support that you need. So, um, but I do think things, things are changing. Just us having this conversation, right? Having lots of different conversations is already making a difference. Just raising awareness um, because the, the, there is, the, if people look closely into, the, into what's happening in the system and what the system is designed to do, there is no justification for what's happening. And um, so I think awareness is key. And I wanna uh, kind of, take a step back and touch on something you said and have you ladies both weigh in on this is when you talked about the act was helping women um, be released from prison and then they're just going into, then the woman is um, picked up on ice and then they're going into other systems. What does that, and you, and you kind of talked about expanding, like they're released from prison, but then they're kind of on this community-based system or maybe they are in another system for a long period of time and they're just kind of like, for lack of better terms, kind of like feeling like they're cycling through just the system and going in. What does that cross system involvement look like? Is that is that as heavy as we think it is? Is that as wide as we think it is? Or is it is there a gap in the information that shows that women, particularly who have been incarcerated, are kind of just still system involved for a long, long period of time? Um. Well, I, I want to um, shout out the work of Donna Hilton um, on parole justice in particular. So Donna um, is a directly impacted person. She runs an organization called A Little Piece of Light, and she does amazing advocacy work all over the country. She's a member of the Justice for Women Task Force. And so one of her main campaigns right now is to work on um, parole justice. So she, if I'm not mistaken, has received lifetime parole. So she's gonna be on parole for the rest of her life and is at risk for these technical violations that would potentially put her back into the system. Um, so there are people you know, working on reducing the amount of supervision that people get. Um, 
and it's important, I think, as we think about what else to do for people who do need support, um, you know, maybe someone who's had some law enforcement contact or it had some type of, of it, something happen in their life where it's pretty clear that they, they need support, that those supports be provided by community groups, that they be in, in, in people's communities, people that look like them, people that are possibly directly impacted peers, that doesn't have to be professionalized always, um, and, and, and that it be voluntary, but we have to make the supports be what people want to do. You know what I mean? What they deserve and what they want to keep them coming back instead of these constant uh, punitive mandates. And again, that those services and supports be given hard budget lines and don't constantly have to be scrounging uh, for money to make it happen. And to add to that, um, also one thing that Laurie keeps reminding us of is like, no matter what supports are offered, we also need to think about um, that these services are never mandatory in a way or um, yeah, mandated in a way that they can be used to re-criminalize re people, right? So we, we might call for parenting services that can't be mandated, right? Like we can, we're calling for trauma-informed um, trauma services, but that can't be mandated because these are all ways in which they are pulling people back in case people don't, I don't know, don't take advantage of these, but really just don't um, follow whatever rules they've been given. So I think that's um, something that I constantly think about um, because like Laurie says that all the time. So, yeah. yeah, that's really important. That's, that's definitely, um, we kind of also see this when we're talking about on the work that I do with youth, you kind of see a lot of the services are kind of like mandated in a sense and really create a very narrow window for success because there's so many things that you could do. And it's just like, oh, if I do this, then I'm gonna, I might get violated. I might have to go back. Like I might have to go back into a detention center or even a jail or prison. So there's so many, there, it's a very narrow, narrow window. And there's so many loopholes that, that I feel like people can fall through um, because so many services and even, you know, have it being voluntary and then making it having it, needing it to be voluntary, but making it mandated is is really hard because a lot of times the services that are mandated are not even really, like I think Lori was saying, services that are needed or that they want, right? So then they're, they're, they are required to do services that are not really supporting what they need in that moment. And then kind of, they never really are able to release from this cycle or system that they are involved in. And just the, the thought of just being on parole for life, I just couldn't, it's just, yeah, <laughs> it's like we're doing the little like, like, like thing right now. And it's just crazy to even think that that is even an option for people, because if the sole purpose is rehabilitation, then there has to be some expectation that people can actually do and be better. And we have to give them the opportunity to do that. Yeah, and I, that's why I think it's so important, directly impacted voices, because if, you know, if you look at the work that Donna has done, you know, she's written a book, she's a executive director of this organization, um, you know, similar to Sharon as a directly impacted woman, how could you say that this woman needs constant supervision of someone, you know, she's a leader, like she is. Uh, so, but even, you know, even people who are not, they do not deserve that constant surveillance. And more people, I don't think we, any of us have said this, but more people are under community supervision in our country, like millions more 
um, especially probation, than people who are um, actually incarcerated or detained. So that is a, we really have to, like Gina was saying, make sure that criminal legal reform does not just include net widening into the community, you know, and just surveillance by another mechanism. And sorry, if I can add one last thing as well that I was thinking about, um, actually that Laurie and I saw in the data is also, um, I think your question was also about like system, like bouncing people from system to system, right? So one thing we also saw is that um, for for a lot of women, for a lot, a lot of moms, separation from their children, right, leads leads to some sort of spiral, right, where people are so distressed by this by being involved with the child welfare system that they are um, that they by some way or another then get involved with the criminal legal system, often often through mental health, through through substances, through unhelpful coping mechanisms. Um, but we don't have the appropriate um, safeguards in place to support people um, in order to unify um, or even keep their children. So I think that's also like a really important pathway to keep in mind as we are thinking about these different systems and how they are connected. And Laura, correct me if I'm, I'm, I'm wrong in, in, in recalling that they, um, these data. No, 100% right. Awesome. Um, so another kind of like as we are bringing this whole conversation together and thinking through, you know, next steps and advocacy and policy change, a couple of questions that I have are the first one is really what does justice look like for women, particularly when we're talking about what does justice look like for women and then taking it a step further, what does justice look like for black women? when we're talking about system and previous or current system involvement? I mean, I can give like a broad answer and I'm sure Laurie has like specifics. So I, to me, um, for black women, for women in general, um, for black people in the United States, um, justice looks like freedom. Freedom from these systems, freedoms from white supremacy, being able to live happily and loving and caring communities. And that is like, I think the main, what we need is just a complete um, abolition of the current systems that exist to, to um, further marginalize and criminalize and kill people. Um, and that is, I think that's what freedom and justice looks like. Yeah. Wow, I don't even, that's, that's beautiful. And I think Gina just dropped the mic. I would, I would say it's a both and conversation um, as well in terms of absolute focus on, on freedom and, and um, building alternatives and, and also making sure that we keep our eye on um, how people inside, you know, while we're building something new are being treated, that we don't take our eyes off or forget about the people um, inside and making sure that they're conditions of confinement are respectful and dignified and safe. Um, so um, as much as I would like to look fully to abolition and freedom, I know that this struggle is gonna take a long time. Uh, and so it's wonderful to be in partnership with you, Courtney and Gina, of course, um, to continue to move, you know, move this forward. Thank you, thank you. Those are great. Those are th those are great um, points, and I think <laughs> I definitely I definitely agree. Freedom and and just release is just is like the ultimate goal. But I, I also understand Lori's point. It takes 
it takes steps and <laughs> those steps sometimes can get frustrating. So I appreciate both of you ladies for the work that you're doing because continuing to keep pushing forward is so important um, through this work. And I think sometimes we forget that it's, it's, it's harder than you think. <laughs> it's harder than you think. Um, so kind of a, a last couple of questions around just like policy reform, shifting the narrative. What um, what are ways we can shift the narrative around this conversation, and how do we use what we've learned today for conversation for policy change? So for me, as you as you as you know, and might have noticed also in my answers, like I'm I'm really more of like a research person, right? So I um I try to just produce, and then the people who are policymakers, hopefully, like you know, do whatever they they they. They want with it, or the people who are most impacted and who, who are interested in these type of data are hopefully um, able to use it in some way. But for I think personally, elevate as a researcher, elevating the conversation, making sure to center directly impacted folk, most marginalized folk in the research, and pushing for funding and for it to keep going with this research, so you can compensate people and make sure that you are asking the appropriate question is something that will, for researchers at least, be able to hopefully then impact policy change and advocacy. And I wanna to add to that, that um, and from a policy perspective, we get so hotted up, like excited about federal elections and what's going on at the federal level. These conversations around criminal legal um, system involvement, they really happen at the city and state level because most people are in jails and state prisons. Very few people are in federal, not, you know, more people than should be, but fewer people are in federal prison. So um, for people who want to get involved in this work, look at what's happening at in your local city council. Look at what's happening in your state assembly or state senate. Um, and I want to in particular mentioned three campaigns happening here in New York right now, a campaign for elder parole. So allowing people to seek their freedom that have been in prison for so long. And this includes women, it gives people a mechanism for freedom. Um, parole justice that I just mentioned, Donna Hilton's work, um, vi visiting work that's happening here in New York. We're trying to codify the legal right to visiting so that jails and prisons won't only force families to do video visiting because it's cheaper for them and also makes money for the for-profit organizations who are um, charged for that service. Um, and there's also a current bill here in New York around um, improving conditions for incarcerated pregnant people. So um, I know those are New York specific. So for people who are listening from New York, um, check out what's going on around that. Um, but for wherever people are, be focused on your city and state because um, that's where this goes down. Yeah, and I would I would agree. I think coming to the task force, I never really realized the issue and the severity of the injustices of women just on Rikers Island and hearing that conversation happening, you know, with um, all of the women at, on the meeting and just all of the things that are happening around it not really under not really knowing because it's not on the public platform like we're not hearing it if you're not kind of out if you're outside of the work that's happening or even outside of you know just the education and knowledge of the things that are that are occurring so i appreciate you know that that space to really learn more and to really know what's happening but i also appreciate like you said Lori, just 
knowing that it happens on the local level, I think we definitely get so bogged up in presidency and 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 larger um, elections, but not realizing, you know, like mayors and council people and, and governors, those are those are the elections that also really matter as well. Um, so I think that those things are really important. Thank you. So I just have one last question for you, ladies. In line with um, the the, the the title of this, not just Women in Justice, but Stepping Into She. Can you ladies tell me, both of you tell me what stepping into she means to you? And then what has been one way that you've been able to do that throughout your work or throughout your life? I know that may be a big question, so I'll give you a second <laughs> to think about it. <laughs> I think for me, thinking about stepping into she is probably has to do with really trying to take perspective um, and trying to think through and center um, the people who are directly impacted, the people who are on all levels, across all identities and structures, most oppressed and trying to stepping into trying not that that's something that's ever fully possible, but trying to the best of my ability to see everyone's humanity and try to step into their shoes and ask kind of like, what would I do when I was, if I were here? And what is it that I would like in terms of support? So I think that's, that's maybe what it means to me. I like that. I love that. I would say just off the cuff, you know, I'm a 44 year old white woman from Temple, Texas. And if you don't know where that is, that's because it's not necessarily worth knowing where it is. Um, and so all that to say that this has been a really long journey for me. And I've been so thankful to, um, you know, partner with and, and um, you know, be in community with and be friends with uh, strong Black women my whole life and um, you know, have, have learned so much in ways that I truly wanna be helpful, but I realize that white help is dangerous. And I, you know, to be um, a co-conspirator and be an ally um, in a way that, that, um, that embraces black women and, and helps them and doesn't, doesn't harm them inadvertently. So that's, that's what it means to me. Thank you for that. Thank you. Thank you so much, ladies. Um, this conversation was so good. <laughs> it was amazing. Um, any last minute thoughts or um, kind of like pushes for people? I know, Lori, you talked about everyone getting involved on their local level. Any last minute things that you ladies would like to share with everyone listening? Can I just also shout out the campaign to close Rosie? Um, and I think Gina should have the last word, but I want to say I want to say that um, you know Sharon uh, White Harrigan, who I've mentioned a couple times, and who's leader of the task force, one of the leaders of the task force for women, um, is working on closing first the women's house on Rikers Island, and um, we're supposed to close Rikers Island by I think it's 2027. Uh, but there are only about 250, give or take, women on Rosen Singer right now, and um, we could close. Rose M. Singer before, but there is a bill before the city council right now to, um, 
to rehabilitate Rosen Singer, like for millions and millions of dollars. I forget how many millions, but it's like horrifying the amount of money they want to spend to um, to renovate Rosen Singer instead of spending that money to get the women off and to close it. So anyone who's in and around New York, please engage. Check out the city council elections are coming up soon. The primary is in June. About 50% of the city council is going to turn over very soon. Make sure that your candidate, if this is something you support, make sure they know this is on and this is on their radar and they would vote in a way that you want them to vote, which is to close Rikers as fast as possible and get the women off of Rosen. Yes. So um, Laurie is my. Um, obviously my favorite mentor, my academic mama, my um, uh, nurse mom, right? So everything she said, please do it. Okay, so that's the first thing. Um, and then I really don't have a lot to add except for, you know, listen to black women and um, listen to the people who are most impacted. They know most, they will guide the way. We just have to follow them. Um, in terms of readings, I suggest people read um, works by Monique Morris, Nikki Jones, Beth Ritchie, Kimberly Crenshaw, all very specific to black women and criminal legal involvement. I think just having like a foundational theoretical lens in addition to listening to people on the ground is going to um, be really impactful for everyone, so. Thank you, thank you. I'm so looking forward to the work that you ladies are doing. I cannot wait to see what else you guys have. I think I wrote down all the studies, so. <laughs> And all the work and all the books. I'm super excited to to learn to learn more, but to also see you know where your work and research takes you. So thank you, thank you again for this conversation. This was definitely an eye opener, much needed. And I hope that everyone listening takes a second to not just get educated, but also to figure out how they can get active and advocate for women um, who are incarcerated, who have been incarcerated, or just any of the local criminal justice issues that you guys are witnessing in your community. So thank you, thank you again. Thank you. So thank much. you. This was awesome. Thanks, Courtney. Thank Hey y'all, thanks for checking out this episode of the Stepping Into She podcast. I hope you enjoyed the conversation as much as I did. And if you would like to check out the top five things I learned from this conversation and more, head over to my Instagram page, Stepping Into She to check it out. You can also watch this interview under the IGTV icon on my Stepping Into She Instagram page. Don't forget to like and subscribe to the podcast and share with your friends. Also feel free to DM me on Instagram for topics and conversations that you would like to hear under the Stepping Into She podcast. Thanks. <laughs>